The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. That means that we need to, if necessary, take a moment of silent prayer so that if need be, you can uh, confess any sins. Make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to concentrate on God's word this morning. So let's bow our heads together and begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, the Scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. And as we look about us in the creation, we see the uh, nonverbal testimony of Your greatness, Your grandeur, Your power. And beyond all of that, we have Your written Word. And as we begin to study it and as we look at it and understand the scope of it and its depth and all of the implications that we see in it, we stand in awe. Father, the Scripture says that it is more desirable than gold. It is the most important thing for us as believers to do, to learn Your Word. For the, Our Lord prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. And there is no other means for our spiritual growth, our spiritual health, and our advance than to learn Your Word. Now, Father, as we continue to study the Old Testament, we pray that You would open up the eyes of the understanding of our soul, that we might understand and see these things and see how they relate to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time we began our study of the Old Testament, the purpose of this is just to give you a good understanding, appreciation of what lies behind the New Testament. So often Christians get the idea, I don't know where it comes from, that, well, we're living in the church age, so it's the New Testament that matters, and they just ignore the Old Testament, which represents about two-thirds of the Bible and is the foundation for the New Testament. And as we saw last time in our introduction, when the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he primarily has in mind the Old Testament because the New Testament canon had not been developed that time. at that time. Now, this morning we're going to continue our study, but we need to have a little review. Whenever you talk about some of the things we discussed last time in terms of how we got the Old Testament, sometimes it's a little tough on the... Uh, on the little gray cells, and so we need to review because that's how we get this locked into our mind. Now, last time, well, I'm already... You're just going to have to bear with us as we work through this new technology. Last time, we looked at the organization, recognition, and transmission of the Old Testament canon. The word canon is from an English word derived from the Greek word, meaning a rule or standard. And it describes that set of books which is authoritative and is the authoritative revelation of God to man containing everything related to God's plan, purposes, and will for the human race. As we looked at the organization, recognition, and transmission of the canon last time, we saw that in the Hebrew Bible, the text was organized according to its uh, writer. There was Moses who wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Torah means law, 
That's the general translation. A more accurate translation is really instruction. And then the prophets, the former prophets and the latter prophets, and then the writings, which include all of the other books, the poetry books, and those books that were written by non-prophets. In your English Bible, the books are arranged by subject matter. It begins with the Law, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And that is followed by the historical books from Joshua through Esther. Following that, you have the poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the major prophets and the minor prophets. We looked at the evidence that the canon was closed before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What you often hear, if you ever attend a class in sociology of religion or if you're ever exposed to some form of liberal Protestant Christianity, is somebody will say, well, that the Bible was those books were chosen by the rabbis at a council called, held at Yomnium after the destruction of Jerusalem. The rabbis got together to discuss some issues related to uh, the canon of Scripture. They did not determine the extent of the canon at that time or even if there was a canon. They recognized the uh, fact that a canon already existed. In that meeting, they did debate some things about Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon as to whether or not to leave them in the canon and they affirmed that they should. They kept the same 22 or 24 book canon which had been adopted in Judaism since approximately 200 to 250 B.C. Now, liberal theology always says that man gives these books authority. And, the, and conservative theology and the Bible claims that God is the one who gives these books authority. And if you read these books, especially in contrast to anything, uh, any of the other apocryphal books, you will clearly see a difference. Now, one of the other books that was disputed at the time in the Old Testament, they had some question about, was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was disputed because the description in the temple in the latter part of Ezekiel was quite different from the description of the temple in the Mosaic Law, as was the sacrificial system that Ezekiel describes that's supposed to be part of the uh, Millennial Kingdom. But because the Jews did not recognize that this was prophecy and related to a future kingdom and that the Mosaic system would eventually end, they thought there was some sort of conflict. And so they, they weren't ready to include Ezekiel in the canon. But one of the rabbis named Kanina ben Hezekiah took the Ezekiel scroll and the scroll of the Torah and he sequestered himself in an upper chamber to attempt a reconciliation of the two books. And after he burned over 300 jars of oil in his lamp, he finally completed the task of reconciliation and so we are told that Ezekiel was accepted into the canon after that. We also saw last time that Ecclesiasticus, which is one of the apocryphal books, which was written about 125 B.C., includes a reference by Yeshua or Joshua, the son of Sirach, who stated that at the time of his grandfather, which would be about 180 to 200 B.C., the canon was complete. Further, we saw that Judas Maccabeus wrote in Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 9.27, in approximately 164 B.C., that he compiled a list of canonical books and he also recognized that the gift of prophecy had ceased. So what we're building a case for is simply that by sometime between 225 B.C. and 175 B.C., it was clear that the Jews recognized the gift of prophecy had ceased and God was no longer revealing Scripture to man. And that is... A 175 to 200 years before the birth of Christ. The Babylonian Talmud, which was written around 200 or 300 A.D., reflects oral tradition that goes back probably before the time of Christ and recognizes the closing of the canon. Also, Philo, who wrote from the Egyptian area, recognized the same 22 to 24 book canon. Josephus, who was writing in the Palestinian area, and these represent the three major groups of Jews in the ancient world in Babylon, Egypt, and Palestine. And they all came to the same conclusion that the same books were authoritative uh, and they came to that conclusion independent of each other. 
And then we saw that Jesus and the disciples also accepted that same group of books. And so we know with confidence that we have the Word of God. Furthermore, we saw that the Dead Sea Scrolls provided text some 1,000 years older than the oldest manuscripts that we had at the time they were discovered in 1948 and thus confirmed the accuracy of the transmission of the Bible. It did not get garbled in those 1,000 years. We saw several, looked at several examples and saw how the Bible was preserved accurately in its transmission. Errors did not come along. You always hear people come along and make statements about, well, how can you really trust the Bible? How do we know it's the Word of God? How can you be sure that we have it? It wasn't, you know, scribes came along in the Middle Ages and they changed things. And you always hear these kinds of statements made, except there is no historical evidence at all for those kinds of doubts. And the fact is that all of the evidence we have shows that the, that the text that Jesus and the apostles had in the first century A.D. is the same text that we have today. Now we are going to begin our study of the Old Testament and look at an overview of the Old Testament. But first we need to look at why it is important to study the Old Testament. So we'll begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, one of the things I'm going to be doing and just experimenting with as we look at this new technology, I don't want you to become a cripple on the screen, okay? You need to be looking at your Bibles, you need to be taking notes, and you need to do what I've suggested before and write in the margin sort of a daisy chain of Scripture references so that you can retrace your steps when you're studying these passages later on. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is addressing the carnal... Corinthians. And he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And by our fathers, he's referring to uh, the Jewish patriarchs, and specifically he's talking about the Exodus generation. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, that is, the Red Sea, and all were baptized, that is, as we've studied in baptism, the significance of baptism is identification. They were all identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. That means that they were that the, is a reference to the manna that God provided for them in the wilderness. Verse four: They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Jesus Christ. So we see from this that God's provision of the physical manna and the physical water was a type or example. It was to demonstrate that just as God provides for our physical sustenance and nourishment, God also provides everything we need for our spiritual sustenance and nourishment. And that was the doctrine that Moses taught the Israelites in the wilderness and the revelation that he gave in the Mosaic Law. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, even though they were all believers, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. The Exodus generation continuously disobeyed God. They did not have any appreciation for the freedom they have. This is so often true. When people are delivered from slavery, if they do not learn doctrine, if they do not grow in advance, they don't have capacity for freedom, and consequently they begin to yearn to go back under that system of slavery that they came from. I saw an example of that when I was over in Belarus about five years ago and uh, spent a lot of time talking with various people over there. Belarus was the former Soviet Republic. It lies between Poland and Russia. And the economy there is just horrendous. At the time I was there, they were experiencing about 150% inflation and uh, I think 5,000 Belarusian rubles at that time. Uh, no, it was about 20,000. No, yeah, it was about 20,000 Belarusian rubles uh, equal to dollars. And they just started slashing, adding zeros to, to bills. They just, it was just incredible. Now it's about 20 million Belarusian rubles equal a dollar. Uh, and when I would speak with the people there, they yearned for the days of Brezhnev because at that time they had money, they had job security, they could take vacations, they could buy whatever they wanted to at the grocery store, they had plenty of meat on the table, and yet they did not have any kind of true freedom but they did have security because they were not, as a people as a whole, were not positive to doctrine and were not learning the word. They had no capacity for freedom, so they wanted to go back under the old system of slavery. 
That was the same thing that happened with the Israelites in the desert. They rejected doctrine, so they had no capacity for freedom, so they moaned and groaned and complained the entire time, and they had no uh, gratitude, no sense of appreciation, no realization of everything that God provided for them. Verse 6. Now these things happen. This is the point of all of this that Paul is making and what I want you to pay attention to. These things happen. That is, all of these events in the Old Testament, specifically with the Israelites, but this would include everything in the Old Testament, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. In other words, you should look and study this material and not make the same mistakes they made. Learn from them. Verse 7, And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, these refer to two different instances. The verse 7 refers to the incident when when Moses was still up on the mountain and the people got Aaron to build the golden calf and they worshipped it and they had a big drunken orgy. And then verse 8 refers to a rebellion uh, under Korah, led by Korah and uh, uh, Dathan and Abiram later on. And, And... God disciplined them and 23,000 fell in one day. Then in verse 9, Nor let us try the Lord, that is to test the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So you have three different instances of disobedience to God and divine discipline listed in verses 7 through 9. And verse 10, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyers. So that's our fourth example of divine discipline on the children of Israel for their disobedience. And then in verse 11, once again Paul states, Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That is, those of us in the church age. The last phrase refers to the church age because it is the highest, most significant time of all of of, uh, human history. So the point that Paul is making in these verses is that we are to pay attention to everything in the Old Testament. It was written specifically for our instruction. The application that we need to take from this is, first of all, that all application in the Scripture is drawn from literal historical events. This is not mythology. This is not some sort of fable that's just devised to give us a moral or some, uh, some principle of life. The Scriptures ground their application and their precepts in physical historical events that actually took place. This is an allegory. And the point from that is that if you destroy the historicity of those events, then you also destroy the significance of the application. If those things did not happen as they are recorded as happening, then the significance in terms of the mandate, the principle, the theology is irrelevant. It's meaningless. The Bible is clearly a book of history. That's why history is continuously attacked by Satan. And we learn from all of this that, of course, from this passage, that the Old Testament is thoroughly relevant for us today. Now, often I hear as a pastor, well, I'm not sure that these things are really relevant, Pastor. And why don't you make them relevant to us? Now, I haven't heard that here, but I've heard that in the past. And you see, we have this screwed up idea that somehow uh, it's not me that has to change, it's the Bible that has to change. You see, the problem is not that the, that the Bible isn't relevant to us, it's that we're not relevant to God. One of the things that we'll see in the coming weeks is that we're all abnormal. Every one of us are born abnormal. We're fallen creatures. We're not what God intended us to be. And the point of salvation and redemption and sanctification is so that we can begin to return to normality. It is the carnal believer and the unbeliever that are abnormal, not the believer who's advancing towards spiritual maturity. And so we get this backwards and we think somehow God must become relevant to us And the problem is, because of our fallen status as sinful creatures, we have become irrelevant to God. 
And the only way to become relevant is to get into the Word of God and let our thinking be transformed. And when we look at the Old Testament, we need to understand the big picture, what's really going on here. And so we're going to have a little chart. This is the one I handed out to you. And your English Bible begins with the law, the first five books of Moses. Really, it should be translated instruction. That's what Torah means. Instruction in life, instruction in all the areas of life, and instruction in how to think about the world around us. When Moses wrote the Torah, the the law, he is writing in a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people. He's writing in about 1400 B.C. to the Israelites. They have just gone through 40 years of wanderings in in the wilderness because of their disobedience to God at Mount Sinai. Prior to that, God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And now Moses is writing to answer the question, Why has God done this? What is your purpose in history? And what does God have in store for you? And since God has done all of this for you as a people, Israel, how then are you to live? So that's the general purpose of the first five books of the Old Testament. Then the second division, the historical books have a marker in there just above the T. I guess it disappears. That indicates 1000 B.C. The historical period covers the beginning of the conquest under Joshua. And you have up until the exile in 586 B.C. This is covered in the book Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And then you have both the northern kingdom taken out in discipline in 7... Um, 22 B.C. and then in 586 B.C. the southern kingdom taken out in divine discipline which is called the exile, the 70 years captivity in Babylon. And that is followed by the three post-exilic historical books Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these books describe, Esther describes the Jews in captivity when they're in Persia. Ezra and Nehemiah focus on groups that return to the land after the exile. So that gives you the historical overview of the Old Testament. The, the law begins with creation and extends up to the, the uh, Jewish nation poised to go into the land. The historical books cover the entry into the land and then the history of the kingdom. The, first the United Kingdom and then the divided kingdom into north, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Then as they disobey God, the precepts in the Mosaic Law said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you will go through a series of uh, cyclical disciplines, the most extreme of which is that you will be removed from the land I have promised to give you. And that's what happened in 586 B.C. After 70 years in exile, they returned. Now that covers the historical books. Then we have the non-historical books, such as Job, which was written sometime during the period covered by the Pentateuch. We don't know who wrote it, and we don't know when it was written, but it took place probably before Abraham was called in Genesis chapter 12. Then you have the poetic books, like the Psalms, most of which were written by David. One we know was written by Moses. Some were written by the sons of Korah. Some were written by others. And so that gives us uh, uh, the hymnic literature. These are the hymns that the Jews sang in in the tabernacle and in the temple in the worship of God. Then we have the books of Solomon, the Wisdom Books, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. These are written during Solomon's lifetime. Then we have the major prophets, Isaiah, who wrote during the 7th century B.C. Then Jeremiah, who lived up and into the exile. Ezekiel lived into the exile. Jeremiah went with the group that went to Egypt. Ezekiel went with the group to Babylon, as did Daniel. And then you have the Minor prophets, and they're usually divided into three groups. You have the pre-exilic prophets, those who, who had a ministry before the exile. Then there's a couple that had a ministry during the exile. And then you had three post-exilic prophets, the last three, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. So that gives you just a scope of how the Old Testament fits together gives you that overall view of history. You see, history is important because history is the outworking 
of the plan and purposes of God. And we live in a time when history is usually rejected, and for good reason by a lot of people, because the way it's taught in most uh, high school courses and college courses is, is rather boring. We live in a time when man has lost the idea that there's universal meaning. And history, therefore, if you don't have a frame of reference, an overarching principle that gives meaning to the details of history, then all you're left with is this mass of detail. And so people end up teaching history as simple dates and facts, and there's nothing to put it together, to weave it together. And in, in the postmodern vernacular, that's called a meta-narrative, the overarching principle that unifies things. And without this unifying concept today, which has been rejected, all you're left with is, is, is the details. And it's the unifying principle that history is God's plan and purpose that gives meaning to all the details. And what modern man has done by rejecting the possibility of a universal knowledge is that he's trying to find meaning and purpose and value in the details. And so you find that in, in historic history departments and universities, they spend uh, hours and hours writing theses and dissertations on all this minutia and all this detail, breaking things down into different cultures, and you get multiculturalism and these other various, various schools of thought that are dominating today. And they're just, all they're doing is spending all this time on the details, but there's no universal. And yet they, they overwhelm themselves with this massive data and think that just because they have all this data that somehow there's meaning. So the data is used to anesthetize modern man to the despair of a loss of meaning in life. And you see the same thing that happens in, in English departments and in literature courses. In fact, one of the, the uh, most difficult places, I think, for a Christian to operate in the world today is not in a science department, but in a literature department. Because the literature departments are dominated by postmodern concepts and, and it's as if literature written before the 20th century is not that relevant. And the focus is on 20th century literature, which is primarily existential and is very negative and very depressing because modern 20th century writers have rejected the fact that there are absolutes and there's value, meaning, and even hope in, in the universe. Now, if you go back and you compare uh, modern literature and you start off reading in the 16th century or 17th century, you discover a vast difference. And that's because the writers, whether they were believers or unbelievers, still had a sense of hope, it's still a sense of optimism, because in a general sense, they believed that there, there was a, the, the opportunity or there was the possibility of, of a unified knowledge. And that has been rejected, and so modern man is left to watch on a sea of subjectivity and pessimism and negativism. And it's no wonder that when you read the kind of literature that dominates the high school classroom and college classroom, why there's such a high level of suicide among teenagers today. It's just depressing. There's no meaning or value in life. So history is important because it is the outworking of the plan and purposes of God. And when we read the Old Testament, we will get into a lot of history, but it is sort of an editorialized history. That's what real history is. It's not just a collection of data. It is looking at what happened and understanding why it happened, what its significance is, what its meaning is. And that can ultimately be assigned only from God, who is the Lord of history and the creator of history. Now, when we begin our study of the Old Testament, we'll look first at the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which begins with the creation of the universe in Genesis 1.1. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we come to the death of Moses, and the Jews are on the verge of entering into the land that God had promised to Abraham some half a century or some half a millennia previously. These first five books are Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, Exodus, the book of deliverance. Leviticus, which describes the priesthood and all of the sacrifices that are required under the Mosaic law. Uh, Numbers describes the wanderings of the uh, Israelites during the 40 years of divine discipline in the wilderness. And the Deuteronomy means a second law. It's a restatement of the law. It is basically a sermon that Moses preached. It is the doctrine that he taught reminding the people that God had made a covenant with the nation and that they were to fulfill their responsibilities under the covenant as God led them into the promised land. So these five books were written by Moses 
in, on the plains of Moab just prior to the Israelite entry into, into the land. We will begin our study with Genesis. Genesis is the title from the Latin, which means uh, uh, the beginning. The Hebrew title was Bereshit, which also means beginning. And you can organize your thoughts about Genesis around seven events, seven things that take place, uh, really four events and three people. The first is the creation. First four events, creation. Well, we got this out of order. Creation, fall, flood, and Babel. These are the first four events that take place in the first 11 chapters, and everything revolves around that. First the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, then the fall in Genesis 3, then the prelude to the flood in chapter 4 and 5, and then the flood narrative covers 6 through 9, and then you have another genealogy, and then the episode at Babel. So this organizes these seven events, creation, fall, flood, Babel, and then three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the interesting thing is, when you look at Genesis, it's a it's a book that in the English is divided into 50 chapters. And yet the first four events, creation, fall, flood, and Babel, take place in the first 11 chapters. Chapter 12 through chapter 50, which is approximately 38 chapters, 39 chapters, cover the lives of three people. What do you think the emphasis is in Genesis? It's in a, on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because Moses is writing this to the nation Israel to explain their existence. Why are we here and what is God's purpose for us? Why did God call us out as a nation? Why did God redeem us from slavery in Egypt? Why were we even slaves in Egypt if we are God's people? And what is God's purpose for us? That is the purpose of writing Genesis. It's not just giving history. It is giving an explanation for the existence of the nation Israel and God's plan and purpose for Israel throughout all of human history. Therefore, once again, I will belabor the point that if these things did not happen the way they are said to happen, then you might as well throw out the rest of the Bible. That is why the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis is such a battlefield. Origins make a difference. If our origins are what the Bible claims they were, then that means one thing. If, our, if we are, on the other hand, just a product of chance and everything just happened and, and man is nothing more than a collection of molecules, then there really is no meaning in life. There's no basis for absolutes. Everything is relative. Everything is pragmatic. And so that develops an entirely different set of morals and ethics. In other words, your social life including morals, mores, ethics, everything related to man's society, politics, marriage, family, everything is going to be viewed vastly different if you accept, depending on how you view the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That's why this is so crucial for us to understand. Now, when we come to our study of Genesis, we see that it is indeed the book of beginnings. I listed at least 25 different things that begin in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and then become foundational for everything that is said about them in the remainder of the Bible. First of all, we have the creation of the space-time continuum in the first verse. Then we have the creation of the universe, and we'll see a little later on that there's a vast difference between the space-time continuum and the universe as we know it. Third, we see the creation of the solar system as we know it. Fourth, vegetation and animal life. And fifth, the creation of the human race. Sixth, we see the institution of marriage. Before the fall, when everything was perfect, God instituted marriage. So marriage is not something designed to make up for problems uh, in creation because of the fall, but it's something that God intended from the inception in perfect environment. Then we have, seventh, the institution of family. Eighth, we see the beginning of sin in the human race. Because of sin in the human race, we have nine, the beginning of judgment in the human race, and ten, the beginning of salvation, God's 
grace and the outworking of His redemptive plan in human history. Eleven, we see the beginning of law and the basis for a judicial system in the first eleven chapters of Genesis. If you go back and you read the, the major legal thinkers that influenced the formation of the uh, United States Constitution and our whole legal system and much of English law, these were people who went back and read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, took them literally, and unpacked from these chapters uh, principles related to the meaning of law and the function of human government. We see principles related to economics. Economics is based upon labor and work. And what we see at the very beginning before there's sin, before there's a fall, we see that man is given responsibility and work to engage in. He's to name all of the animals, and then he is to guard and keep the garden. After the fall, his work becomes laborious. It is the sweat of his brow because there is now conflict between, um, between his work and what he needs to do with the land and the curse on the earth. Because of that, because now man has to work and he has to work harder, has to spend so much time working, it keeps him from pursuing evil and sin. So there is, a, in a sense, a benefit to labor that reduces uh, criminality and sin. So you see principles related to economics. I always like to bring that in because people think economics. Yeah, the Bible has a lot to say about finances and economics. Uh, labor, uh, social makeup, social principles. Uh, 15 has a lot to say about language and learning. The very beginning, God is the one who begins to name things. Because He names things, this He first separates things. For example, on the first day, He distinguishes between darkness and light because He has made a sharp distinction between darkness and light. God can then name them. The very fact that something is named indicates that there are distinct boundaries delimiting that thing. So you see that that language presupposes absolute categories in creation. And we'll see some implications of that a little later on. God begins language, and it is with language that we think. So we can begin to unpack from what we see in the first two chapters of Genesis some principles related to how the mind works, how the brain works, and how learning takes place. God initiated human vocabulary. It's interesting to note that in the first uh, few days of creation, God is naming things, and then He stops naming things, and He delegates that responsibility to man. But it is God who initiated the process of, of language and language development. Sixteenth, we see the development of cities in the fourth chapter of Genesis. Seventeen, we see the development of God's grace towards man despite man's disobedience and sinfulness. We see the introduction of the idea of sacrifice. Nineteen, we see the development of music. And twenty, the development of metallurgy in the fifth chapter, a fourth chapter and fifth chapter of Genesis. 21, we see the beginnings of demonism in human history and idolatry, 22. 23, we see globalism and internationalism develop and culminate in God's judgment at the Tower of Babel, which was the first attempt at a United Nations. 24, we see the God's institution of government in Genesis chapter 9 and then national distinctions as a result of the confusion of the languages in Genesis 11. And then in Genesis, right at the end of Genesis 11, beginning in, and beginning in chapter 12, the beginning of the nation Israel. So Genesis is indeed the book of, the, of beginning. Everything that the Bible says about these subjects from Genesis 12 through Revelation 21 assumes the literal historicity of these events. What happened historically cannot be divorced from the doctrine derived there without destroying the doctrine. Think about it. Real simple example. If Jesus did not live as the Bible says He lived, if that is not historically accurate, then there is no meaning to Christianity. If Jesus did not rise from the dead physically, the resurrection, 
then there is no meaning to Christianity. If you divorce Christianity from its historical roots, from the, the historical context in which these events took place, then it is no longer true. It is no longer valid. That was Paul's argument for resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That is why it is important when people say that they believe the Bible is true in all matters related to morals or, or faith and practice. What they're not saying is that the Bible is also true when it touches upon matters of meteorology, matters of history, matters related to the military or warfare, that there may be mistakes there. Well, if there are mistakes there, then the principles grounded there are also wrong. And that means that faith is in the Bible is always based on historical events. Remove the foundation, you remove the other. Now, why is creation important? We begin our look at Genesis. We'll begin with the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. Why is this so important? It is indeed, I will argue, foundational to everything else in the Bible. This is how the Apostle Paul treated it in one of his encounters with Gentile unbelievers in Acts 14. In Acts chapter 14, the apostles had come into uh, South Galatia, and as they entered the town and performed some miracles, the Gentiles thought that they were gods, and they began to uh, bring flowers to them, and they began to bring offerings to them, thinking that they were that uh, Barnabas was Mercury and Paul was Zeus. When Paul, when the apostles, that's the context, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd. See how seriously they responded to the idolatry of the unbelievers. They did not treat it casually. Well, they didn't sit back and say, well, they're just ignorant, they don't know better. They, they, they caught the importance of this, that they were being viewed as gods and how serious that was. And look at what they say when they respond to the Gentile unbelievers. Verse 15. They said, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. That is, we're not God. And we preach the Gospel to you. Now, most stop right there. Most of us, when we think of preaching the Gospel, we start off taking somebody down the Roman road. First of all, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Then, the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, see, all of a sudden, we're at Jesus Christ. We've talked about all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but we haven't talked at all about who God is. What God? How do you know it? What content are you giving to the word God? All kinds of people talk about belief in God. But when you look at the Bible, it's very precise when it uses that word God. And notice that Paul is as well. He doesn't just preach the gospel. He doesn't stop there. It's not just a trip down the Roman road Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will you shall be saved. He says, we preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And how does he define God? Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, for Paul, to understand and be able to accurately proclaim the gospel, you have to ground it in the creation event of Genesis 1 through 3. If you take away the God of creation who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, you take away the gospel. That is why the attacks from evolution on the gospel, I mean, on the first three chapters of Genesis, are indeed attacks on the cross. We don't have time to go there, but if you look at how Paul interacts with the Athenians and with other Greeks in Acts 17 and Acts 19, he always goes back to the God who made the heavens and the earth. For the gospel presentation and evangelism is firmly grounded in a literal creation and a literal Genesis. What's interesting when you come to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that they seem to be contradictory accounts. Several people have noticed that how in the world could all of the things that are described in Genesis 2 take place on the sixth day of creation, God creates the man. Then He brings the animals to the man and He begins to name them and realizes there's a male and a female. Then, uh, so that's going to take a long time to name all the animals. And then God puts a deep sleep on him and He takes a woman from His side and creates uh, Isha, the woman, and joins them together. How can all of that take place in just, just one day? And so liberal 
theologians have said that this is an example of contradiction in the Bible. You have two different... They're just kind of put in there together and one contradicts the other. So how can you believe the Bible, you stupid Christian? I mean, I've had, I had history professors in college who basically made that same argument. And it shows a number of, a number of problems in the arrogance of the rejection of the Bible. Point number one is, I mean, how absurd would it be what a low view they must have of this supposed editor of the Scriptures to think that he would recognize that there was a contradiction between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. I mean, the, the, the assumption there is that this guy had to have room temperature IQ and couldn't see that there was a, a, a contradiction between the two. Secondly, it reveals a complete failure to understand how Hebrews, how Jews wrote history. First they give you the summary and then they come back and they give you the details. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4 is the summary of the entire creation event. The six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. And then in Genesis 2, the writer comes back and fills in the gaps and gives you the details on what he wants you to really pay attention to. And that is the creation of man. Furthermore, if Genesis 1 was written by one person and Genesis 2 written by somebody else and they're contradictory accounts, then the, the inference from that as far as our Lord is concerned is that he certainly was stupid too. Notice what Jesus does in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Now the subject there is divorce, but that's not what we're concerned with here. In Matthew 19, 4, Jesus answered the Pharisees and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That is a reference to Genesis 1.27, the first chapter of Genesis. Then in Matthew 19.5 he says, And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus clearly saw that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 were complementary accounts of creation and not contradictory accounts, and Jesus affirmed the literal historicity of both events in this statement. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2.13, Paul refers to the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, and he writes, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. That took place in Genesis 1. Then in the next verse he says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. This is a quote from Genesis chapter 3. So the Apostle Paul also recognized Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 as being literal, historical reality. If you do away with the historical reality of Genesis 1 through 11, you take away the foundation of the New Testament. If Genesis 1 through 11 did not take place the way the Scripture describes it, then it undercuts the foundation for everything that is said in the New Testament. You can't come in with a razor blade and say, well, we'll accept this and we won't accept that. It is an integrated, unified whole. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Throughout the Scriptures, we see the emphasis that God is the God of creation. Isaiah 42.5. Now, I'm going to go through a series of verses to make the point. You don't need to look at these verses. You might want to jot down the references there next to Genesis 1.1 so that you can uh, recall them later or, or, or keep good notes. Isaiah 42.5. Thus said the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, He who created the heavens, and there we have the Hebrew word bara, which only God is the subject of that verse. Only God creates bara. God created the heavens and stretched them forth. He that spread abroad the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. So here it sees that it is God who created everything and not only that, He is the one who gives breath to every single one of us. Believer or unbeliever, the reason you breathe from moment to moment is because God gives you breath. He sustains the universe from moment to moment. That's why we don't have to worry about all the greenies and all the tree huggers who are running around screaming gloom and doom all the time because of environmental problems. Uh, what they reject is the fact that Jesus Christ controls history 
and Jesus Christ controls the environment. Isaiah 45, 12. God says, I have made the earth, asa, meaning to uh, make it from existing materials. I have made the earth and I have created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, all their hosts have I commanded. Jeremiah 10.12 He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding as He stretched out the heavens. And then just to make sure we don't miss the point, the Holy Spirit repeats Himself in Jeremiah 51.15 by repeating the same statement verbatim. Now how did this creation take place? When you look at your Bible, in Genesis 1.1 it begins, God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase in the Hebrew is Hashemayim, the et ha'aret, which is what's called a mirrorism. It's a figure of speech. He, the same kind of thing we read in the Psalms when it says that he meditated upon God's word day and night. You use opposite to indicate its totality. You, you're, you're, you, do it, you do something from top to bottom. That means you do it completely. So there's no word in the Hebrew language for universe. So you can't say God created the universe. What you say is God created the heavens and the earth. And from these other passages you see the image of God stretching out the heavens. It's a very spatial concept. What we have in Genesis 1.1 is the creation of the space-time continuum. Planets, the solar system, the stars have to fit inside something. It's as if God stretches out this box, this, this, this universe that we have. It's just a space-time continuum. That's all that's there in Genesis 1.1 is, is that big empty box, empty except for one thing. There's a planet in the middle and it is the planet Earth. That's all that's there in Genesis chapter, chapter 1. Now there are various stages that we must understand as we go through these first three verses. God creates, first of all, there is the original Earth which is called the Garden of God in reference to, to uh, Satan's fall in Ezekiel chapter 28. This is the original earth. It apparently was the habitation of, of Lucifer, and I think the God had his throne on the earth. You Navy guys will understand this. I think this is, this is somewhat analogous to the fact that an admiral will take one of the ships in the fleet as his flagship. He is not the commander of that ship. There's still a captain for that particular ship. The admiral is simply putting his headquarters there. So I think the situation in this in the earth at that time was that the earth was the location of Satan's headquarters, Lucifer, prior to the fall, and where he had his responsibilities specifically related to the throne of God, and God had his throne here. Why, we don't know. That's not specified in Scripture, and all we have is a few tantalizing hints from Ezekiel 28 and a few other places. This was a place of perfect environment, and yet something happened tragic. There was the fall of Lucifer when he uttered his five I wills found in Isaiah chapter 14. And as a result of that, there is a judgment upon the earth. And we find the phrase in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew phrase is tohu vabohu. And it indicates that there is a state of chaos and destruction and judgment upon the earth. Now, we look at a few passages in Scripture to confirm this. We see in Isaiah 45:18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place. Tohu. So God did not create it a waste place, so it must have become that. That's indicated, incidentally, by the opening phrase there when it says, And the earth became... It's really a disjunction, a contrast, a contrasting conjunction in the Hebrew, but indicating something happened. Uh, it wasn't originally created Tohu, but it became Tohu. God originally formed it to be inhabited. It was uh, inhabited by the angels. There was no pre-Adamic race, no other life, just angelic life. Isaiah 34.11 uses this word Bohu in reference to divine judgment. But the peloton and the porcupine shall possess it. This is a reference to it, uh, Judea after God's promised destruction by an enemy force because of their disobedience. The peloton and porcupine shall possess it, and the owl and the raven shall dwell therein, 
and he will stretch over it the line of confusion and the plummet of emptiness. And this word for confusion is tohu, emptiness is bohu, indicating this is related to divine judgment because of sin. Jeremiah 4.23 says the same thing with the same phrase. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, that is, tohu v'bohu, and the heavens, and they had no light. So this indicates divine judgment because of sin. Isaiah 45.7 states another aspect of this verse. Now, if you look at Genesis 1-2, it says, And the earth became empty and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. There are three things that are referenced in Genesis 1-2. Number one is tohu v'bohu. Number two, darkness. Everywhere else you look in the Scriptures, darkness is related to the judgment of God. God is light. If we went to the end of Scripture and we see the new heavens and new earth, there is no darkness. Everything in the universe is illuminated by the glory of God because God is light. So this was the initial condition in the original earth there was light. Where did the darkness come from? Remember, darkness is the absence of light. So, what caused the, the judgment? So, we have three terms, and then the third term is to home the deep, the salt sea, which is always a picture of chaos and judgment in the Scriptures. So, there's three different terms used in Genesis 1-2, all of which indicate judgment throughout the rest of the Scriptures. Now, Isaiah 45-7 says, referring to God, the one forming light, in creating darkness. I want to make the point here. Notice the parallelism in, in the way this poetry is set up. The one forms light and creates darkness, causing well-being is parallel to light and creating calamity. That's the parallel to darkness. I am the Lord who does all these. So darkness is seen as evil and judgment. Revelation 21.1 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, first earth passed away and there is no longer what? Any sea. So you see that in the perfect environment of the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sea. Why was there sea in Genesis 1-1, the turbulent salt sea? Because of God's judgment on planet earth. And then in Revelation 21-25, and in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. So there is an eternal daytime, eternal light in the new heavens and the new earth. So something took place. Job 38, 38, 4 and 5 tells us that when the earth was originally created, God said God, that there was unity among the angels. In Job 38, 4, the question is asked, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When, notice, this is the point, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So at the creation of the earth, the angelic hosts are unified. There is no division between fallen and unfallen angels. There is unity at the point of the original creation of the earth in Genesis 1.1. So first the angels are created, then God stretches out the heavens to make a habitation for them, and then He makes the earth. And at that point you see the heavenly chorus singing together and praising God for His magnificent creation. So we have the stages of creation now. We have the original earth. It's the garden of God. Then there's the fall of Lucifer, the chaotic judgment upon the earth when there's absolute darkness in the universe, no light whatsoever, which means that if the earth covered with water is going to be frozen, covered in an ice pack. And then you have the picture, the redemptive work of God began with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep and you see the beginning process of redemption and restitution of the planet Earth into the present Earth. The stars are not created until the fourth day. So there are no stars in that pre-Genesis 1-2 universe. It is as different from today's universe as the new heavens and new Earth will be after Genesis chapter 21. Just a couple of things about creation. The question that's always asked is, how old is the earth? Well, we don't know how old the earth is, but we can. the science is going to operate and they're going to tell us. They operate on a principle called uniformitarianism. 
Uniformitarianism is the underlying foundation of all the dating schemes. Whenever you go to a national park or you read a science book, somebody says, well, this has been here so many years, what they do is they measure certain decay rates, either carbon-14 or potassium argon or some other, some other chemical. They measure the decay rate. Whatever that decay rate is today, they extrapolate backwards. And the assumption is that the decay rate has been uniform throughout all time in history. Okay? So let's see. Carbon-14 is one clock. That yields one day. By a clock, I mean a measuring device for time. Uh, potassium argon is another clock. So if you, um, uh, before we get there, the scriptures prophesied this in first, in second Peter chapter three, verse three. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's uniformitarianism. The processes are always the same. And then Peter goes on to say, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago. This is the antediluvian world before Noah's flood. And the earth was formed out of the water and by water. That's the first day of creation, or second day of creation, separating the outer water, the water vapor canopy, atmosphere, and then the water on the earth through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. What's his point? The point is that there's a catastrophe in human history that changes the processes. The assumption is that all things always continued at this rate. What Scripture says is there's a worldwide flood that completely changes the dynamics of everything. So you can these dating mechanisms are only good for a short amount of time. For example... You can measure the process of the influx of sulfate into the ocean. That is, as the rivers come down, they deposit a certain amount of sulfate on the, at the delta where they come into the ocean. You can measure that. And the indicated age of that is that the Earth is 10 million years old. You can look at the decay of natural plutonium in, in, in our various substances, and that would give an indicated age of 80 million years. You can look at the decay of the Earth's magnetic field. Since the days of Kepler, we've been able to measure the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere, and it declines each year, and so you can extrapolate back. That gives an age of the Earth of 10,000 years. If the Earth were any older than that, it would implode because of the strength of the magnetic field. The influx of radiocarbon to the Earth from outer space also indicates an age of about 10,000 years. The influx of magma from the Earth's core out to the mantle to form the crust indicates an age of 500 million years. Notice how, how vastly different all these are. I mean, who's to say which is right? Uh, the formation of river deltas indicates an age of the Earth of 5,000 years. The development of human population, you can develop statistics and formula based on population growth, extrapolate back, and... That leaves an age of the Earth of only 4,000 years. The influx of aluminum to the ocean via the rivers indicates an age of the Earth of only 100 years. The influx of lead to the ocean via rivers indicates an age of only 2,000 years. So you see there's all kinds of clocks, and I took this from a book by Henry Morris called The Modern Basis, or the Basis for Modern Science, and he lists 64 different clocks. And I've seen other charts of similar nature which indicate everything from a range of 100 years to 500 uh, million years. And what that shows is that who is to say if it's carbon-14 or potassium argon, the dating, dating of the Earth and the age of the Earth is as great a problem to any evolutionist or historical geologist as it is for any Christian. They do not have an answer except you'll never hear this kind of information in any uh, college classroom. So we don't know when Genesis 1-1 took place, but we can date back to Genesis 1-3 when the restitution of the planet took place. And that took place, I believe, between 4,000 and 4,500 B.C. based upon all of the genealogical records. And that, is, that changes the way people think about things because they say, well, what about the pyramids? What about that? And we'll cover some of those issues as we go through this and see why it is 
that these evolutionary assumptions, these uniformitarian assumptions, control everything. Every time you go anywhere, you start hearing some kind of date beyond about two or 3,000 B.C., put a big question mark on it because what underlies that is a whole theological framework and frame of reference. But what we see in the beginning is that God is a God of grace in judgment, a God of redemption. We see throughout the Bible that grace precedes judgment and here we see that grace follows judgment. God is a God who redeems even in spite of judgment. The point is no matter what you've done in life, no matter how bad, no matter what your failure, God is still a God of grace. He is not a God who delights in judgment. He is not a God who delights in catastrophe or cataclysm. He is a God who, when it is called upon Him to judge, He is a God who still exercises grace and redemption. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the time we've had to look at Your Word, to see the magnificence of Your creation. And as we continue this study of the Old Testament, pray that we would be challenged in our thinking and how we look at history, how we look at what You have done in history and what You have done to provide us salvation. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning without certainty of their eternal destiny, without salvation, that now they would take the time to make that decision. If you have never made a decision regarding your eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to do so. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, you have the privacy to decide what you think about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate grace solution. He sent His Son to die on the cross as a substitute for your sin, so that by faith alone in Christ alone, you can have eternal salvation. And now is your opportunity to make that decision. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with what we have learned this morning. May you, you call this to our mind when necessary. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.